You are listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Well, as we um, <clears throat> will be heading into Advent, as I mentioned next week, and so this is our, um, our last psalm here in this little series, Heartaches and Hallelujahs. And if you've been here with us for a while, you've seen it runs the gamut, doesn't it, of heartaches and hallelujahs. You've seen some of the lowest of the lows as they're crying out in their prayers, and you've seen some of the, the highest of the highs, the royal weddings even, just the epitome of joy. We've seen that all throughout these psalms. Now, I'll remind you, <clears throat> excuse me, I'll remind you that um, the book of Psalms is, was originally broken into five different books, five different books, and we've been walking through book two, which started in chapter 42, and takes us through uh, chapter, uh, sorry, chapters 42 all the way through chapter 72, and you could hear in how it was read this morning, um, and I've been pointing this out a little bit as we've gone along, that the beginning of, in this case, Psalm 42 is an introduction to Psalm 42, but it's also a bit of an introduction to the entire book of those psalms. And that you just heard it read, you could probably sense that the end of 72 is also a bit of an end to this book of Psalms. So there's the breakdowns, 1 through 41, 42 through 72, 73 through 89, 90 through 106, and 107 through 50. That is the breakdown that they were originally in these different books, and now they've put them together into this one Psalter of 150 books. And you can hear that it ends with this beautiful benediction, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone has done wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. It's a good summary in a sense of what's been going on for the last 30 or so chapters. May God be blessed. God alone, he's saying, is the one who has done these wondrous things. And if you think about little Israel there in the midst of all the heathen enemies all around them, that all invented their own gods, that all tried to get people to worship them, and now he's saying, you alone have done wondrous things. In contrast to everybody else, all these polytheistic cultures out there, they're saying, God, we worship you and we worship you alone. He says, may not just Israel, but the whole earth be filled with his glory. And so you can start to see, and you've seen this in some of the other Psalms, that there's a specific thing going on. In this case, it's the succession of the throne from David to Solomon. However, you can also start to see, can't you, um, when you read this, that it, that it goes out from beyond there. We'll see that it's not just meant for Israel. It's meant to be a blessing to the ends of the earth. That it's meant to go until the sun shines no more, the moon shines no more, until life is no more. That's what they're saying. He's saying like, until this world ends, may this kingdom go forth. And so you see this idea of um, it's about Solomon's day, it's about David's day, but it's also going forth and it's foreshadowing the Messiah that would one day come. That Israel's true king, Israel's Messiah, would have a reign over all the earth forever. The prayer in this is may the king reign with justice and may the king reign with uh, righteousness. That's the two things that he asks for. But it foreshadows the one who would one day come from the line of David who would rule in perfect justice and in perfect righteousness. So before we get too deep, <clears throat> there's one little authorship question. You, you, heard, um, you heard it read there in chapter, or verse 20. The, it ends with, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. 
And so because this is in a context and it says the, at, the end of the, at the end of the chapter and it says the prayers of David are now ended. It's also the end of the book as well. So you would assume, so this, this Psalm 72 must have been written by David. But it gets a little tricky because the header of the Psalm says of Solomon. And every other time we've seen this Hebrew, Lev David or of David, it could mean it is of David, it is about David, it is for David, or it is by David. And most of those times, I think it's obvious, and so I take them all to be written by David. And it has the same um, title here, it's Lev Solomon, and so it's of Solomon. I feel like the translators don't know which one it is, so they say just put of, and we'll let other people figure that out. Is it by Solomon, is it about Solomon, or is it for Solomon? And I think to be consistent, we would say this is written by Solomon. But then what do you do with the end that says the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended? Well, I would point out in this text that we've been in, in this book, there have been other psalms that haven't been written by David. They're explicitly attributed um, to the sons of Korah. And there's a couple others that seem to come from the choir master himself. And so this doesn't mean every single prayer in here is a prayer of David. Um, It's saying, I think, just simply, he's the primary author of this entire book, of these 31, I guess it is, psalms. I think that's what he's trying to communicate. And this one especially, because it has the idea of succession, that it's moving from David to Solomon, it does sort of make sense to say, all right, David's done in this book now. And now this is that torch passing to Solomon. So you'll hear me say Solomon wrote this. Um, I'm not dying on that hill, but that's the way I'm going to share it here. And it is the majority position in church history, so feel good about that. Um, But the the point of this really, (coughs) excuse me, is there's something hinted at, even in the title, that it's been David, 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 Solomon. That this is a looking forward. This is the kingdom must go on post David. And so, again, I'm going to say this is Solomon asking for two things. He says, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. I think the the phrase, your royal son, is very important because, if you remember, Saul was the one that the people picked. They said, everybody else has a king, we want a king. And so, God said, you don't want a king. You want judges, which is what they had. And they said, no, we want a king. All the other nations that don't follow you, they have a king, and it's, you know, let's do what they're doing. Let's have a king. And so he finally said, you can have Saul. Let's see how that goes for you. And it didn't go well. And then every other nation, you would have the king, and then the idea is it goes to his son to be the next king. But it didn't go to Saul's son, did it? It went to the son of Jesse. It went to David. And so it's almost like God, you know, watched them get Saul and put him on the throne and then went, see, that didn't really work. I'm, I'm going to start from scratch here in a sense. I'm going to take David, not some son of Saul. I'm going to take David. I'm going to put David on the throne and then it will be handed down through his line of Solomon. And that's where we get ultimately um, Jesus Christ is from the line of David. So Solomon, what he seems to be doing here, when he's saying, give the king your justice, first of all, he's not saying like, oh, pour out your justice on me, like give it to me, God. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, God, you are a just God, and if I'm going to reign justly, I need your eyes, I need your heart, your mind, so that I can dole out justice the way you do, how you would have me do it. That's what he's, that's what he's asking for. 
And I think what he's doing is um, <clears throat> he is seeing more than just himself sitting on the throne. Give, your ki- give the king your justice, righteousness, to the royal son. And then throughout this, we'll see it seems to be going and pass it down and pass it down and pass it down. It's like he's saying, whoever is going to be seated here on this throne, may they be like you. That's what he seems to be asking here. The throne is what's prominent instead of the actual king himself. Like you might, I've never got to meet a president sitting or otherwise, and, but like I imagine if I just walked into the Oval Office, whether or not I liked the person that was in there, I'd probably have a sense of, whoa, like this is a, this is a center of power. This is a, this is a kind of, a, in a sense, a sacred place. Like this is a big deal. That seems to be what he's doing here is he's going, this throne is because God appoints somebody to sit there so this is a sacred thing. And he gives, he gives what I'll call humility in his headship. And I'll give you two quick things that he does here. Humility in his headship. The one I just mentioned, I think he's saying the throne is bigger than me. This is my throne. I'll sit on it for a little bit, but ultimately I'm going to be gone someday and someone else is going to sit on it. And God, would you just show your favor to your people and have a godly, just, righteous person always sitting on this throne. So there's a part of him that already knows he's got an expiration date of being king. And he is praying for the king over Israel. Right now it's him. But he's praying, God, would this thing continue by your mercy? But here's the other piece I find interesting. Humility and headship part two. He says, may he judge, may the king judge, and notice what it says, your people with righteousness. And your people with justice. So did you catch what he's doing? As he's praying and as he's probably taking the throne, the most powerful throne in the world, you know, because it is God's throne and he's appointing him there, he says, God, these are your people. The poor in the nation, those are your people. Help me govern well. And may whoever comes after me do that as well. These are your people. I would think that there's no other place in the world that would be more tempting to say those are my people than in the throne room of Israel, someone who's there by divine appointment. Well, those are my people. And if a leader sees people and goes, those are my people, those people exist for them. And what Solomon is saying is these are your people, you've put me here, I exist for them. I'm not gonna be here long, but my 40-year reign, we know. My 40-year reign, what would you have me do for your people? When I was in, uh, I was in seminary, and um, Chuck Swindoll's the the chancellor there, and we went to, uh, we we had a chapel, and uh, he was he 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 was such a good he is such a good communicator, and he always just knew when people were just starting to tune out, and he would do this thing where he would like hunch over every so often, and he might even give it one of these, like that, and as he's talking, but for some reason, like if you've ever heard him speak, he's also sort of like smiling, and so you're like, how can you be like angry and beating this, and then like, I don't know, he, he pulls it off, man, he does it, and we're sitting there watching him, and he's speaking, and, uh, and then he did one of those things, he did the little lean over, and he started to hit the thing like this, and he goes, listen to me, talking to a whole bunch of seminary guys, he's like, listen to me, he says, one thing you will never hear me say is the congregation that I serve is my congregation. You won't hear me say they are my people. And he was hunched over and he was doing this. And he said, they are not my people. They are God's people. What does it say? He quoted First Peter, shepherd the flock, what? 
He said, not shepherd the flock of Chuck. He said, shepherd the flock of God. You're God's people. Now, ironically, by the way, we had a memorial service in here Friday. And I've, Chuck's been all rattle around in my brain. And I got up to give the benediction. You know what I said? I got up and I wanted to read Numbers chapter 6, which we do here all the time. And what I meant was, this is something we do at our church, and, and I love to read this over the people. And I got up and I said, you know, one of the things I share with my congregation, and I just pictured Chuck Swindoll like, they're not your people, like right there in the midst of the benediction of the memorial service. And I was like, I'm sorry, Chuck, you know, and I almost like started apologizing, like, well, let me back up and tell you a story. And I just fought through it. Because I don't think anybody realized it except me. But I do have this thing in me of just going, I have a role, but you are God's. Ultimately, you are God's. That enables pastors to do things like this. Let me just give you one implication. If somebody is here worshiping, and for whatever reason, just starts to say, "I, I I just don't think Rockland is my church anymore. And so they start going to someplace else, and they start thriving. If it's like my people and my thing, well, that's like a shot to my ego. I might crumble that someone, oh, I couldn't do that for everybody. Oh, no. But if you're God's people and someone goes somewhere, I'm not encouraging you to leave Rockland, don't hear that, but someone goes and does something else and they start thriving, there's a part of me that can just continue to worship and say, praise God. They were yours before and they're yours now. How does that change if we really do see people? These are God's people. That's what's happening. He's saying, God, give me your justice and your righteousness for your people. That's our job, is to see people as God's. By the way, here's one simple way that you can do that. Um, if, you talk to a, if you talk to people about a person, you will hate the person. But if you talk to God about a person, you will love the person as he does. You ever notice that in your own life? Somebody you don't really care for too much, and so you go over here, and these people go, yes, I agree, and then you start to have a heart of bitterness towards that person. And instead, if you are angry, upset, hurt, whatever it is, and instead of going and gossiping, if the first thing you do is you go and you go, God, this person's driving me nuts, then all of a sudden, if you're genuine in your prayers with him, I've seen this happen so many times in my own life and others, that all of a sudden, God starts giving you eyes to see them as he sees them. And instead of bitterness, it can turn to love and it can turn to compassion. He doesn't just say justice and righteousness. He talks about justice for a particular group of people. So may he judge your people with righteousness. It says, and your poor with justice. Let the mountains <coughs> excuse me, bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. Notice what he's asking for, by the way. This isn't prosperity gospel where if you do something good, God will give you a bunch of stuff. But he is saying, would you let our nation prosper? That's what he's praying right here. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. Then it says, may he, may the king, defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May the king do it. But this is theocratic Israel, and so really the the, the cry is, God, would you help your king always remember those who are poor, the oppressed? Now, we live in a different world today, for sure, and we could talk about what's the government's role or not. I just want to say, this is saying God's people 
move with hearts of compassion for those in need. And it's easy to look around at like politicians and go, oh, they're just using them to get elected and they're ignoring them because they get more money from it. However, I know a lot of Christians that uh, use the poor in a similar way. Well, I was driving down the road and I you know, gave a guy with a cardboard sign, I gave him $10. And if you really get honest about what just happened is your um, guilt meter dropped by $10. Or my, my feel-good meter increased by $10. It felt good to give that to that guy. So my, my feel-good meter increased. And either way, it's not necessarily seeing them as God sees them. So listen, do you know one of the primary ways the gospel went forth in a persecuting Roman empire over a small group of people? I said, I said it in our Bible studies this week. There's no logical earthly reason why Christians should still be here today. It was a small group of people oppressed by a Roman regime, and we were the only ones that they didn't like because we wouldn't worship Caesar. There's no natural, logical reason. The only one is the supernatural work of God to preserve his people and go from way over there to all the way over here. God has done that work. And he moved in his people a very similar way throughout history. And one of the ways he did it is he gave them a heart for the poor, different from a worldly heart for the poor that just says, I'll do this because I feel good or I get a tax write-off or I get something back, I feel better, my guilt is gone. This is, I am just going to give. I am just going to serve. In fact, listen to this. <clears throat> so this is in the uh, fourth century. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, the Roman emperor Julian wrote something. He didn't like Christianity because that was the only group that couldn't say G uh, Caesar is Lord. And so they, they were persecuting them. And so what he did is he actually called, they called the Christians in the first century, they called us cannibals because it was, you know, body and blood of Jesus Christ. And the other, the other name that kind of stuck was they started saying atheists, which is very ironic. But they called Christians atheists because we wouldn't bend the knee to Caesar in the first century. And everybody else was praying to all this whole huge thing of God's. And so Caesar called them atheists, but listen to his frustration of Christianity spreading in his day and what he'd seen over centuries. He says, atheism, which is a reference to Christianity, had been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal, listen to this, that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar. And that the godless Galileans, this is Caesar's words, care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us, the Romans, look in vain for the help that we should render them. Listen, he just said there's not a single follower of God that is out on the street begging because the Christians, the Jews, are taking care of them. And then he says, but it doesn't stop there. This scandal that he's talking about, he says it's not only just like, well, our people, they're going, he says, they're going to the Romans. And they're winning people over to this faith because they're going to the Romans and Caesar's sitting here going, we should be the ones that's, that are caring for them. And we're not. And so the Christians are stepping in and the Christians are saying, what can we do? How can we help? What's mine is yours. That's how Christianity just took off. It is, listen, it is hard to argue with somebody when they have just given you a meal and you just haven't eaten in days. Man, I'm listening to whatever they have to say. Why in the world would you do this? My own, my own empire, didn't, they have plenty of money to do this. Why aren't they doing this? Well, I'll tell you about Jesus and what he's done for me. 
and you see this thing start to grow and grow and grow and grow. I, I, I want to give you one very specific application. I would pray for a discerning mind, mind about what injustices are actually happening in the world today. Pray for a discerning mind to know the injustices that are happening in the world today. The reason I say that is there's some people that anything is an injustice. I mean, th there is an industry to be talking about these people are oppressed. You can make some money off it. And if I quit saying you're oppressed, all of a sudden I don't have the social capital online. Like I'm known for advancing this cause. And so there's money to be had here. And so there's some that just push the oppression, 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 and everything is oppression, and everything is injustice. And there's another group that's going, we're so sick of hearing that every single thing in the world, not everything is that. And so there's other people that come over here and almost go to the point of, well, nothing's really wrong. There's no injustices. And the Christian has to have the discerning mind to be able to hear the noise from over here and the avoidance from over here and say, what is going on in God's world with people that he made and people he loves? And where is he calling me to step in to that. I'll give you a fun kind of um, <clears throat> corporate application, corporate meaning all of us here. Um, so I have been, uh, we're going to do something over this Advent season that I want to set up a little bit, and you'll, you'll hear the intentionality behind it. Um, <clears throat> I have been studying the history of Christmas because I have heard a lot about it and where it came from, and I was wondering where did we get the date, and when did it start getting celebrated, and what is Advent, and I've just been studying and studying and studying and reading all these books, it's been a lot of fun, um, but uh, uh, in the first century, they didn't, they didn't celebrate Christmas. They didn't have a birthday of Christ because the only people that celebrated it were the pagans. It was a pagan thing to do. It was the only ones in the Bible we find are Pharaoh and Herod. And you don't see Christians or Jews or followers of God that are doing that. And so it was, it was more of a pagan tradition in the first century. So there's not a lot of that. So, but the other reason, too, is they thought Jesus was about to return. And they thought, why would we look at, oh, let's his, get his birthday and figure out how we're going to celebrate it every year if he's going to be back in six months. They thought that was a big waste of time. And so as time went on, now you have this thing in 2023, you've got, um, you've got December 25th here, January 6th in the Eastern world with the church that celebrates the birth of Christ on December 25th. And it had a bit of a rocky start and throughout history, it's been quite rocky to get where we are today, this thing that we almost take for granted. Let me just give you some of the challenges that has, have happened in the church, and then I want to show you the remedy that our forefathers did, the church did, in order, to, um, in order to bring this celebration of the birth of Christ to where it is today. One of the reasons that they started preaching the nativity text, which they weren't very much because they said, well, Jesus is about to come back. So they didn't preach the, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, all the world should be taxed. They didn't preach those um, very prominently in the early church. And what prompted them to start teaching them was a heresy called um, docetism. Docetism comes from the Greek word dokeo, which means, uh, which means appears or seems. And so the docetists, or docetists some people say, um, they said, well, Jesus can't be fully God and fully man. That doesn't make sense in our brains. And so what we have to do is we have to um, just decide one or the other. And they said, he wasn't really a, a man. He, uh, he just appeared to be. He looked like one, but he was basically this spiritual being and that was that. And the church had to come along and say, well, the Bible says that, that he was fully God, fully man. 
And so what they started to do, that pushed, that heresy actually started pushing the church to say, we should really talk about the birth of Christ to show that he was a boy that grew to a man, to talk about the humanity of Jesus Christ. So there's this heresy that started going out that the church had to respond to. Then, this one's my favorite, there was all this persecution by Rome, and there was all this fear, and so what did the Christians do? They all scattered, and as they scattered, you know what they did? It went to the Gentiles, and they started taking on those traditions from the Gentiles, because Gentiles were just good Roman citizens. They celebrated birthdays, and so they started, you know, as the gospel started to spread because of the empire-wide persecution, it started to spread and go all over, and they started going, well, we celebrate birthdays, and they started going, wait a minute. Why are we celebrating our birthday and we're not celebrating the birthday of the most important person in our life, Jesus Christ? And so you've got this heresy that went out, this persecution that went out. There's um, all these different pagan traditions that were out there, and there's a little debate about this, but um, right in those really dark, uh, that, those dark weeks at that end of the year in this region of the country, they said, let's have some pagan feasts, pagan festivals, not the church, others. Let's have these pagan festivals, and let's have it be as lewd as can be. Let's have all this debauchery and drinking and, and all those kinds of things to try and take this dark, dark time and brighten it a little bit. And so the church saw that, and then as some of the pagan, uh, paganism started to fall, and then as the church got more influence in the Roman Empire, many think, and I've, as I've studied, I think this is probably true, that they thought this would be a good date to use this, this time of year to sort of help push that away and we'll celebrate. Now the problem of course is the church pops in and goes, I know that you guys spend like a week just in utter pure just pleasure of whatever you want to do, um, but now we're going to just stop down and we're just going to talk about Jesus. And it was like a, a time of fasting and mourning the fact that Jesus needed to come to earth. He needed to go to the cross. And so they kind of went, yeah, we're going to kind of keep some of the worldly traditions here. And so the church is trying to go, we're trying to celebrate the birth of Christ, and then all of a sudden you've got these groups of people going, that sounds good, but i got to keep a foot in the world too. See the dilemma? And then the church said, we're going to start celebrating it, and we're going to start celebrating it with a huge feast. And then what started happening when the feasts started happening? They looked around and it was, all the wealthy and powerful are here at the feast. And so we're actually neglecting some others in our community. We're neglecting the poor. And so all throughout church history, there's just been up and down and up and down, and they've been trying to find answers for it. And I wish, well, this is Jim's summary of all my research. There is one common thread that the church kept coming back to to help remedy all of these different things. And they kept turning the season of Advent Back to a time to remember the poor. Back to a time to say, it is not about you. When you've got, <clears throat> when you've got um, heresy, one of the reasons heresy came in is because people are going, he's God, he's man, I don't, have, I don't have peace in my mind and my heart about that. And so the remedy was, why don't you go sit across from people who don't have any peace in their heart, they don't know where their next meal is coming from. And all of a sudden it put their world in perspective. You've got these powerful people that are causing fear and all the harm that could come to me. And they'd say, go sit across the table. Go give, asking nothing in return of some other people. And all of a sudden, it'll put your life in perspective. They're worried if they're going to live through this cold, dark season. 
You know where your meal's coming from. And the church kept pushing Christians back to this idea. How did they combat this idea of all these pagan traditions and debauchery and and now it's kind of seeping into the church? They said, instead of just saying, don't do that, they said, here's what you do. Instead of having it be all about you, that's what all that debauchery is, it's just meeting my needs and feeling good and all those different things, they would say, go sit down next to somebody and meet their needs. Find the joy in doing that. And what you start to see through different pockets throughout history is these things rose up. The church, they tried other things, but man, they kept coming back to encouraging people to view the people that the rest of the world has forgotten and see them with the eyes that God has for them. And then they started having these feasts. There's one guy, I can't pronounce his name. But they started having these feasts, and he was debating, do we stop having the feast? Because now they're just turning into the exact opposite of what they're supposed to be, right? It's just all the wealthy people here gathered around eating, and we're ignoring all the poor. And so here's what he said. Instead of saying we shouldn't feast, we shouldn't have this joy, here's what he says. He says, let us indeed feast, but bring with you one or many who do not even know how to properly behave there. In other words, he's saying, let's have our feast. But on the way in, why don't you grab some people that aren't able to feast? Grab some people that don't know the rules of sitting in a fancy banquet hall. Feels like me at a real fancy wedding sometimes. When I'm sitting down and all I can think is, why do I have four forks? Which one do I start with? So I watch somebody who's classier than me, which is pretty much everybody at the table. Oh, we're doing this one. Okay, good. I don't know what I'm doing. He says, grab people like that. Grab people with nothing. Grab people that are going to embarrass you and bring them into the feast and don't have them go sit at the secondary table over there. Have them sit right next to you as equals. And what you see throughout church history, care for the poor, care for the poor, care for the poor. And I believe one of the biggest reasons why we celebrate it today Think about commercialism today. What's the remedy to that? Commercialism is all about you, 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 you. What do we do with kids? Give. Give. That's why we do these things. These are spiritually formative things so that we can have the heart and mind of God. This this Advent season, I told you there's a way to corporately apply this. Just come to church. That's one way. Um, And what you're going to see in church is this. We're going to be you know, lighting our Advent candles, and we're going to have um, some of the different ministries that are doing exactly what I'm talking about, that are caring for the people that are neglected, that are going to get up here, and they're going to be lighting the candle, and you're going to get to see them. You're going to get to offer them a word of encouragement, and I guarantee some of you are going to have your heart stirred, and you're going to want to give. You're going to want to go, wait, how do I get involved with that? How do I pray for this ministry? That is following the heart of God. When you come for the, uh, the services, Bring a wad of $1 bills, okay? Here's why. You know our dollar bill program? This doesn't make Rockland money. It actually costs Rockland money. You bring a $1 bill, every $1 bill you put in, we match it, and then we send it out the door to people that are doing this. And this whole month of, uh, of December, it's going to a ministry called Life's Options up in Evergreen, a ministry that helps women when they're pregnant and they're trying to figure out what to do with the baby, and they come alongside them and they go, here's clothes, here's diapers, what can we do? Here's free sonograms, here's all these different things. We want to walk alongside you. This is a beautiful Christian organization. And every $1 that goes in, we match it, it goes right out the door to get up to them. We can have the heart and the mind of God as we see his justice in the world. I think the easiest way to remember this 
is what we are called to do for others, what Christians have been called to do for centuries. It's what God did for us. We are the poor, helpless beggars. At that first Christmas, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to rescue you and me. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forevermore. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended.